everyone. This is Volts for November 25th, 2022. What the midterm elections meant for climate and energy. I'm your host, David Roberts. So uh, you are probably aware that a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. held some elections. It's been uh, two weeks now. I'm sure those of you who are interested in the elections have seen all the election analysis in the world at this point. But uh, here at Volts, we move at a more artisanal pace. Uh, and now we're ready to give you some analysis of the elections, specifically through the lens of what they mean for climate and energy policy. I think there's a lot of big results, not just on the surface, but down uh, one level, sort of in some of the states. And we're going to dig through all those and figure out exactly where we stand post-election. I am joined in this effort by Whitney Stenko, an energy policy analyst with Washington Analysis LLC, an independent research firm out of Washington, D.C. Whitney has been analyzing energy for decades now, and she's uh, gone through all the state results, and I'm excited to cover those with her. So, Whitney, uh, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very much looking forward to it. If you will indulge me, Whitney, for a few minutes here at the top, just before we jump into the state results, I just want to um, kind of mention a few things at the federal level, kind of the federal energy results, and then we'll jump in. I just want to uh, emphasize a few things. The first thing, which I think people are probably aware of now, but is worth emphasizing, is there was no red wave. <laughs> Everyone... <laughs> Almost everyone got that wrong. As a matter of fact, it was um, one of the best performances for a ruling party, for the party of the president, in a midterm in uh, years and years and years. One of the couple of statistics, since 1934, there have been three midterms in which the president's party did not lose Senate seats and lost less than 10 House seats. So that was FDR in 1934, JFK in 1962, and George W. Bush in 2002 on, in the wake of uh, 9-11. So, and Biden did that without, you know, any terrorist attack rallying people or any <laughs> New Deal rallying people. As a matter of fact, he did it uh, in the middle of a bunch of inflation and, uh, uh, you know, worries about crime and a plague. So <laughs> all of which is to say... It was a remarkable performance by Democrats, so remarkable and remarkably surprising. Uh, it was one other statistic. It was the first midterm since 1934 in which the ruling party did not lose a single state legislative chamber. As a matter of fact, Democrats made gains in the states. We're going to return to that later. But that is also remarkable. And I think what that shows, you know, everybody's done their analysis at this point. But to me, you know, a lot of sort of analysts and pundits in the run-up to the election were saying, you know, abortions kind of faded from the headlines at this point, and no one cares about democracy, Quit trying to make people care about democracy, talk about kitchen table issues, talk about inflation and crime. And I just think um, that turned out to be really wrong. <laughs> Turns out abortion uh, mattered quite a bit, and democracy mattered quite a bit, and perhaps Democrats should learn something from that. One other thing, so we've got divided government now. The, the Republicans have the House and the Democrats have the Senate, which means that in terms of big, ambitious legislation, Biden is probably done. That's probably it. 
for big legislation, there might be some things might squeak through because um, McCarthy has a very narrow majority in the House. We don't know exactly how narrow yet, but it's narrow, which means a few rogue Republicans theoretically could cross the aisle and um, join Democrats in past bills. But uh, I would call that unlikely. And specifically, I would say that Manchin's dream of permitting reform is dead. I don't know. We can uh, <laughs> maybe some people disagree. <laughs> I think it's dead. I think that's that's probably true for now. Yep. And one other thing I wanted to mention is Dems took the Senate and that's just a very I mean, some people say, like, divided government, you can't pass legislation. What does it matter? I just want to emphasize it's a very, very big deal to have a majority in the Senate. Even an arrow, even if it just turns out 50-50, we don't know the outcome of the Georgia runoff yet. But even if it's just 50-50, a bare majority is much, much better than 49. Uh, it means that the Senate can approve judges, first and foremost. And, and Biden said that's going to be a huge priority, cranking out judges. They can approve appointments. If they get 51, they can hold votes even if two of their members are absent, and the Senate can launch investigations. They have some oversight power themselves, and there's going to be a hail of bogus you know, uh, attention-grabbing investigations from the House in Republican hands. So Democrats can do something to you know, try to fight back on that score. So holding the Senate is a very, very... Big deal. And the final thing I wanted to mention on a federal level is, you know, there's a big coordinated right wing effort to run election deniers this time around. People who insist that Trump won the 2020 election, they ran for secretary of state, I think in seven states. There's a big slate of other candidates that almost all of those people lost six of the seven election-denying Secretary of State candidates lost. So, um, you know, one of the clearest results, I thought, from the midterm elections is that democracy won. <laughs> the people who were, you know, threatening basically to throw upcoming elections, I don't know, threatening, they were saying, you know, outright <laughs> that they're going to throw upcoming elections, were defeated. So democracy was defended. So all that's... Um, a striking and I thought extremely good result at the federal level. So, Whitney, uh, do you have anything to add at sort of the big federal level before we jump down to the states? I mean, I think you've got it exactly right. I think maybe one thing to add on the Senate side, since Democrats are going to keep the Senate to the extent that there is legislation that moves and there will be some things like there's a farm bill that needs to get done mm. um, next year and we'll have appropriations and there's the you know, national defense appropriations, debt ceiling, you know, Democrats will have a bigger seat at the table than they otherwise would have. So more compromise to get the things done that have to get done. Right, right. A better position all around. And uh, actually, something else you've mentioned, one thing maybe that puts some context around the state discussion is that, uh, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, is going to be put into effect. It's going to start. Right. Basically, money is going to start raining down <laughs> and implementation is going to get underway at the federal level, which all, all, all of which will be going on, you know, and, and providing sort of context for what the states do. Yeah, that's exactly right. So to the extent that, you know, there were, what was that, $120 billion, give or take, um, climate spending in the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And then on top of that, you have the Inflation Reduction Act, which had, you know, $270 billion in tax credits and Another hundred or billion or so in spending, 
you know, that spending goes through the executive agencies, which will still be under a Biden administration. And while we should expect increased oversight in the House, um, if, <laughs> since it's going to be controlled by Republicans, that spending is still going to be controlled by large part by the Biden administration. And then to the extent that that spending moves on to states, you've got some wins uh, for Democrats in states that will then help deploy that spending. Yes, it's going to be very helpful. Uh, I mean, it's going to be helpful for whoever happens to be in charge of the state right. <laughs> when the money comes raining down. But that's going to be a, a lot of a lot of Democrats. Okay, so that's the federal stuff. But now let's get in to um, the nitty gritty of the states. Um, just to sort of set the context here and to emphasize yet again, heading into this election, the Democratic Party controlled thirty six. House legislative chambers and Republicans controlled 62 state House legislative chambers, 36 to 62. After the election, um, Democrats gained control of four chambers and Republicans lost control of four. So the total is now 40 to 56, which is still not parity, but again, not since 1934. <laughs> as a party gained state legislative house um, seats in a midterm like this. So, um, you know, striking as the federal results were, I think it's also really clear in the states that Democrats turned out. And as I have said on the site many times, there's one weird trick if you want your state to pass clean energy policy, and that is putting a bunch of Democrats in charge of it. And Democrats have taken full control, as in a trifecta, governor and both chambers of the House, in four new states. So these states had divided governments before and now have unified Democratic control. That's Michigan, Maryland, Massachusetts, and Minnesota. M states had a really good run this year. We're going to go through those one by one, but I just want to mention in Nevada, Democrats had a trifecta and lost it with the with the governor's race. And in Arizona, Republicans had a trifecta and lost it because of the governor's race. So net net out of the election, Democrats gained three trifectas and Republicans lost one. So let's jump in. Whitney, let's talk first about Michigan. This is in Michigan, the first Democratic trifecta in 40 years uh Gretchen Whitmer won re-election despite a literal kidnapping plot <laughs> against her I don't know why DeSantis is out here getting all this good press uh, Whitmer you know practically dodged bullets to to take this office you know Michiganders put the right to abortion in the state constitution Whitmer got both chambers of, of the legislature's big deal big democratic win in Michigan and you know Whitmer um Previously, when she had divided House, had tried a lot of green things, had issued executive orders and whatnot, but now they've got a trifecta. So tell us what's going to happen in Michigan now that Dems are at the wheel. You are exactly right. There was a big flip for Big Gretch in uh, Michigan. <laughs> and I think, I know that it's a great nickname. You know, from a governing perspective, it's just huge because, you know, when Whitmer came into office after the election in 2018, it, there was an outgoing Republican trifecta, mm. right? So they right. had a Republican governor and Governor Schneider, and then a Republican House and Senate. And so in her first term, she kept the Republican House and Senate, but now flipped both houses. And so there's a real 
sea change in terms of governance, yeah. I think, in Michigan. So you're correct. Whitmer had um, used some executive orders to try to move ahead with climate-related issues. Uh, she was working to adopt a 26 to 28 percent greenhouse gas reduction for the state by 2025, and you wanted to go carbon neutral for the state by 2050. But those were just executive orders. And so now with trifecta rule, you know, what we could see happen there is for the state legislature to pursue legislation to codify that. You know, another thing to highlight, I think this year, Whitmer had proposed deploying 2 million electric vehicles in the state by 2030. And one of the things that she had put on the table was a $2,000 electric vehicle rebate, which was rebuffed by Republicans <laughs> in the legislature. But, you know, you could absolutely see them revisiting that. I mean, I think that's particularly probably true in the wake of the, you know, what I would call oh, lackluster EV credit and the Inflation Reduction Act that... Um, There's a lot of uh, uh, asterisks and, and right. <laughs> you know, may not apply in all cases. <laughs> yes, many hurdles to jump through to get the federal EV tax credit. Michigan's a, still a car state, right? Uh, it is. So they have reason, I guess, to try to stack something on top of that federal credit. <laughs> You got it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I can see them bringing it back. I mean, I think what we've heard thus far is one of the things they want to focus on initially is changing some of the right to work laws, um, these union forming laws in the state of Michigan. But I, I would not be at all surprised to see clean energy come up as part of the agenda. And there's a big, uh, some sort of pipeline. There is. <laughs> fight going on. There is a pipeline fight in Michigan. It's been going on for a while. Some of you may have heard <laughs> of the Line 5 pipeline. This is a oil and natural gas liquids pipeline that's owned by a Canadian energy company, Enbridge. It was built in 1953 to lay across the lake bed floor, sort of at the Straits of Mackinac, um, which is basically like the intersection between Lakes Michigan and Huron. And it provides energy to Canada and to some to Ohio and some to Michigan. And it's been very controversial for many years. And when Whitmer came into office in 2018, she campaigned against the existing pipeline. And the outgoing Republican governor put forward a plan to create a, a new tunnel, sort of drilling underneath the lake mm. to put a tunnel to put the replacement pipeline underneath the lake. And so what they tried to do as she came into office in that lame duck session, the Republican trifecta put some legislation in place that tried to tie the idea of the replacement plan sort of beyond the outgoing Republican governor's administration. And so this fight's been going on for a while, and there's really two pieces to it, because one piece is whether or not you shut down the existing line, and the other piece is whether or not you build a replacement tunnel. And so, you know, as far as the existing line goes, at least from my perspective, you know, I'm not sure that this trifecta really changes anything. I think whether or not that existing line shuts down is a question that's probably ultimately going to be decided at the country-to-country -country level in treaty negotiations mm -hmm. between the United States and Canada. But I do think, you know, a trifecta government in Michigan probably gives Whitmer more leverage over what the future of a potential, if it's going to happen, replacement tunnel would be. Right. So Big Gretch in Michigan now has is now empowered. We're probably going to get 100% uh, clean energy legislation. Michigan will join the I've completely lost count now of how many states have 100% uh, clean energy goals. but. It's got to be getting up towards half of them. Um, so let's move on. Michigan's the biggest one, probably the most dramatic 
swing for Democrats, but they also have three other trifecta. So then uh, let's talk Maryland briefly. Wes Moore won in Maryland, outgoing Republican governor. Uh, uh, this was sort of a theme. The next state we're going to hit too. Outgo- the outgoing Republican governor, Larry Hogan, was actually quite popular, one of the more popular uh, governors in the country and, you know, a moderate, I guess, what passes for a moderate these days on the Republican side. He had, as I understand it, though, vetoed a big clean energy bill and then it was passed, I think, over his veto. So there's some stuff in place in Maryland, but now they've got a trifecta. So what do you you think they'll do with it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of interest from incoming Governor-elect Wes Moore to adopt a 100% clean energy mandate for the state, you know, building upon, as you mentioned, that 50% mandate that was adopted under Hogan, uh, over Hogan, maybe the right way to put it. Begrudgingly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I I expect to see a push there. Maryland does have a 50% renewable portfolio standard uh, by 2030. You know, so I think 2023 is going to be a big year for climate initiatives in Maryland. And I think it's something that Governor-elect uh, Moore seems passionate about. And so maybe one thing to mention is that in Maryland, Democrats do have super majorities in the House and Senate. Ooh, yeah, mm, super majorities. <laughs> they can do whatever they want. <laughs> going to turn all the boys into girls and <laughs> ramp up the CRT. Okay, um, so next, uh, Massachusetts again, had a Republican governor, reasonably popular, reasonably moderate Charlie Baker, who actually, um, as Republicans go, was not awful on climate and energy, but his successor Republican (laughs) turned out to be not nearly so popular. So now Mara Healy is governor and has a trifecta. You know, anything specific you see coming down the pike in Massachusetts? Um, Some of the things that uh, Governor-elect Healy ran on was creating cabinet-level climate chief to coordinate activities across her administration, you know, some implementation of the law that you were just talking about. She's also mentioned wanting to build a green bank through the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, basically help microfinance, you know, demand-side management projects and those kinds of things. Yes. I think one of the things that's interesting about Massachusetts that we'll see, she's going to be coming into office at an interesting time this winter because, you know, of course, New England is is facing a particularly tight distillate and diesel fuel market right. this winter. All of New England is. And, you know, keep in mind, in New England, it's kind of a double whammy impact because it's not just, you know, high diesel prices that affect logistics, but also because so much of New England, I think on the whole, it's like 30% gets its, you know, home heating through fuel oil. Right. And so I was just looking on the Massachusetts.gov um, website, and you know they're predicting a 63% higher home heating oil cost this winter compared to last winter. So you can imagine, right? That's tough, you know, particularly if you're living on a fixed income. So you know, one of the things that she has called for uh, is a, a million heat pumps by 2030. <laughs> yes, I was just going to say, sounds like a job for <laughs> heat pumps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly. Um, and that would definitely help, right? It's a long-term solution, but, you know, it definitely helps with the long-term outlook there. You know, there are other programs, you know, even at the federal level, like LIHEAP and things like that, that they'll be discussing. But, you know, my guess is that all sort of feeds into a federal discussion about how we, you know, whether or not we want more than just oil in our strategic petroleum reserve. Right, right, right. Interesting. Uh, okay. So the fourth, then, new... Uh, 
just to be clear, these are not four total trifectas, just new ones, was in uh, Minnesota, where the state Senate was Republican, flipped to Democrat, giving Governor Tim Waltz a trifecta. So, you know, you can't get anything done with a Republican state Senate. Now they've got a Democratic state Senate. What does he want to do? Yeah, there's a lot going to go on, I think, in the land of 10,000 lakes. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, so we've had this tension between democratically controlled state house and the Republican tr- controlled state Senate, particularly over funding for climate related programs. So I think Waltz had a 100% clean electricity goal that he tried to get done, I believe, both in 2019 and maybe again in 2021, and then it was stopped by the House. And so that's definitely something that you could see with a trifecta come back and, and cross the finish line. The other thing that we've seen hanging around in Minnesota in the legislature is the idea of doing a low carbon fuel standard for the state. You know, Minnesota, of course, is a big corn state. And so even with the Republican Senate, there was some, you know, optimism that proved to not pan out that they might be able to get an LCFS done. But I think with, with you know, trifecta government, you know, we should keep our, our eye on an LCFS because I think it, I'd be surprised actually if they didn't get it done. Sweet, sweet. Another one in the 100% clean energy column, stacking up, continuing to stack up. And a low-carbon fuel standard, which California has. And are there other states with low-carbon fuel standards, or is California still alone? No, no, no. No other states. Uh, Oregon has one that's been in place for a bit. Uh, Washington State has a new one, starts this year, I think. Oh, right. I should remember that. I covered that when we (laughs) covered that. (laughs) I've forgotten so many things that I've covered. (laughs) (laughs) But also Canada. Right. Right. So the national government of Canada has one that they've been rolling out and putting into place. And I'm not sure if it's ready to go yet, if they're still sort of in the administrative process. But that's definitely spreading and gaining momentum as well. Cool. So those are the four new trifectas. M states. If this were Sesame Street, (laughs) this podcast would be brought to you by the letter M. (laughs) By the letter M, taken over by the letter D. So let's hit some other states. There's uh, some other interesting things going on. I thought Oregon was an interesting case this year. So, you know, Oregon's had a Democratic trifecta going into this, even had, I think, supermajorities going into this. But there was an interesting, you know, Kate Brown, the governor, is on her way out. Tina Kotek was running as Democrat, and there was this third party in the gubernatorial race, this extremely well-funded by a single billionaire crank type of third party bid in Oregon, which a lot of people worried would siphon off enough votes to put a Republican in office. But that didn't happen. Uh, (laughs) Kotek one and uh, sort of one interesting note is that Kotek uh, used to be in the Oregon legislature, and while she was there, was quite instrumental in helping to pass Oregon's 100% clean energy law in the last session. So, you know, Oregon, I guess, hasn't changed that much in that they still have a Democratic trifecta. But what do you, you know, what is uh, Kotek going to focus on? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think Oregon is going to be one of these states where. You're keeping a democratic trifecta, and what you're going to see a lot of is implementation, mm. right, of existing law. So, as you pointed out, Oregon already has a 100% clean electricity standard with a goal by 2040. They have, a, we just talked about, a clean fuels program, which is like an LCFS. They want to do 25% carbon intensity decrease there by 2035. And so, I think some of the things that Kotec has talked about is 
transitioning away from the use of fossil fuels and gas in homes and commercial buildings. You know, I think Oregon's a state where, you know, there's going to be a lot of focus on climate resiliency, particularly for communities on the front line of wildfires and other extreme weather events. Um, This is another area where some of this federal spending through the bipartisan infrastructure bill and also the Inflation Reduction Act can filter down to help these governors, some of these governors move forward on some of these priorities, I think. And don't they have a cap and trade type of deal going into effect in Oregon? That's always a, an implementation, a real fun implementation Administrative challenge. fun time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would assume if they had gotten a Republican governor, that process would have been much more difficult. Indeed. So uh, Oregon, just to the south of me, continuing to go for it, probably accelerating. And they have a coal phase-out law already on the books. Yep, that's correct. Too. So I guess that, that's going to be more implementation. Hot hot times in Oregon. It's interesting. <laughs> Just a brief side thing about Oregon here is the, the sort of disjunct between the rural bottom part of the state and Portland basically is like, <laughs> is, is growing, you know, more and more bitter. The rural part of the state wants to bail and join Idaho. Uh, huh. Is my understanding. It's like they want Idaho to basically be like, uh, you know, to take in all the benighted rural areas around it that are suffering under the yoke of, of urban democratic rule. Anyway, Oregon is, a, is at once a climate and clean energy sort of amazing success story and, you know, at the same time, a bit of a mess. You know, I think there's a lot of parallels with that probably in New Mexico. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so <laughs> there's our segue. Let's jump to uh, New Mexico. Um, Michelle Lujan Grisham uh, reelected, has a trifecta. That's right. And, you know, I guess you could see her reelection as a small d Democratic endorsement of that direction. So what's going to what's going to go on in New Mexico? So first off, I was born in New Mexico. So uh-huh. great, great love for the land of enchantment. Um <laughs> You know, Grisham was very productive in her first term. I think that's the right way to to put it. And and it's such an interesting state because, you know, it's the third largest oil producing state in the country. Oh, is it? Yeah. The state budget is heavily, heavily reliant on oil and gas income, I think, to the tune of like 30 to 40 percent of the state budget. And the state budget itself is quite mm. small, right? It's only, I think, eight to nine billion dollars or something like that per year. And even so, they have a democratic trifecta. And so let me just give you sort of a list of some of the things that they got accomplished uh, in Grisham's term. So she had a New Mexico methane strategy on the oil and gas industry that was there to um, create waste rules that require 98% gas capture by 2026. The legislature put in place 100% zero carbon electricity requirement for utilities by 2045 and 100% zero carbon electricity for all rural electric co-ops by 2050. They've doubled the number of renewable energy leases on state trust lands, and they adopted some pretty stringent air rules as well. I mean, they got a lot done. And so I think, again, this is going to be one of those states where implementation uh, is key. Like if you take the methane strategy that impacted the oil and gas industry, I mean, there was a really complicated administrative process that recently wrapped up, right? And so now, you know, over time, the impacts of those regulations are going to roll out through the different administrative agencies in New Mexico. Did the oil and gas industry 
hate that? Do they hate her? Is that is that the situation in New Mexico? Is that no. it's kind of her against them, or is there something more cooperative going on? There's something more cooperative going on, at least as far as I can read. I mean, look, the oil and gas industry never likes regulation. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, I think that given the givens, right, of how important the industry is to the state budget and the state economy, there was more of a cooperative approach that the Grisham administration took. And I think there was a lot of fear from the oil and gas industry when when that process first started. But at the end of the day, I think... You know, the, the rules are a lot tighter, but I think folks are happy with the way that, that it's going to be rolled out. Interesting. And so, I mean, this is, this is, of course, fascinating to me. It's kind of a case study in, you know, sort of if you take Democrats at their word long term, that oil and gas is probably going to have to go away <laughs> at some point. But as you say, the state is totally dependent on it. So it just seems like a, a hugely, what do you call it, sticky wicket for, for Democrats in power. How, you know, is that, um, is New Mexico sort of the right, the best example of sort of that dance trying to sort of, you know, uh, move against oil and gas without, you know, you don't want to get the sort of like whole industry up in arms against you and lose your trifecta. So how's that dance playing out there? It's interesting, right? New Mexico is such an interesting state because most of the voting population is sort of in the Albuquerque, Santa Fe area. Right. Urban areas, of course. Urban areas where the the oil and gas production is really concentrated in the southeast corner of the Mm, state. Classic, classic situation. Right. Exactly. You know, so you, you you said the right word. I mean, it's a dance, right? I mean, these governors with trifectas in a state like that, and you could even point to Colorado, where the you know the correlation or the dependence on the oil and gas industry is less, but there's just still significant industry in the state, and they've overhauled how they regulate the oil and gas industry there. And there's a lot of back and forth. I think yeah. it wasn't always <laughs> you pleasant. Could, you could put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, uh, a lot of different ideas, you know, but as an analyst, you know, the way that it ended up is that you're going to have tighter controls on the industry and you're still going to have room for oil and gas production, um, which is important to these economies of these states. And so that's the way that it ended up. But, you know, the rules that New Mexico put in place are, I think the, the environmental industry or the environmental groups should, I don't know the right way to put this. It's um, a lot more stringent than, let's say, the neighbor of Texas, right? <laughs> more stringent than Texas. <laughs> so it Texas. sort of depends on your perspective. <laughs> a little bit of a low bar there. but And that's about leakage, those rules, about methane leakage primarily? Yes, that's right. Um, I touched on a whole bunch of different things, but that's one of them. And so there was a piece about cleaning up methane emissions, and the other one was about overall air emissions. So not just methane, but uh, right. NOx and VOCs too. Okay, uh, one other thing that is going on in New Mexico, which might not be on a lot of people's radar, is a question about a utility merger. So um, tell us briefly uh, what's going on there and how will the governor deal with it? Right. So a utility company called Avangrid is trying to buy PNM Resources, which is a single state utility in New Mexico. And the Public Regulation Commission in New Mexico initially denied the purchase in 2021, but now Avangrid has hung around and it's going to get a fresh look by the PRC uh, thanks to a constitutional amendment adopted by referendum. The PRC is now going to become appointed, an appointed body and oh, move from five members to three. Yeah. 
So Grisham will have a role in those appointments. And my colleague, Rob Rains, who covers this issue for us, thinks the purchase has a much higher likelihood of getting approved. And Avangrid is just a bigger multi-state utility that just wants to kind of swallow up New Mexico's utility. Right. Well, and I think there's a general belief that Avangrid uh, would be a good partner mm. to help fulfill the goals put out, you know, forth by the legislature and the Energy Transition Act. Right. And just <laughs> before you leave this behind, in New Mexico, voters voted on a constitutional amendment that would make the PUC appointed instead of elected. It's yes. who, <laughs> that's, I'm just trying to imagine the pro and con commercials for this. Like, how do you even explain to voters what the hell that means? I believe that was an election cycle ago, so I don't remember exactly how that went down, but um, indeed, it is so. I'm a fan of a, doing a lot more appointments and a lot less elections. It's uh, It makes more sense to me. So, all right, that's that for New Mexico then. <laughs> indeed. What about Pennsylvania? Big swing state. All eyes were on Pennsylvania this year, mainly because if the Republican I never did fully learn how to say his name. And now, thankfully, uh, <laughs> hey, cut, Terzai? Is that... no, Doug Mast- Mastro. Oh, Mastriano. Yeah. Oh, the uh, Republican. I thought you were talking about the outgoing um, House majority leader. No, no. The lunatic <laughs> that lost the current, the current <laughs> right. race and was, was attempting to bring I'd down. I already her. forgotten about him. <laughs> yes. Thank God. We could all forget about him. He was, uh, um, you know, in a, a field of lunatics for the head lunatic and, you know, was threatening to throw Pennsylvania's electoral votes to the Republican, no matter what happened, which, you know, given how narrowly things play out in our elections, could very well have determined the next presidential election. So that was a very big deal. Scary. Everybody's watching. Uh, Shapiro pulled it out and won governor and got a Democratic state house, although the Republicans kept control of the Senate. So Shapiro's here governing a swing state with divided government. <laughs> Other than a lot of uh, heat, <laughs> can we expect any actual policy to emerge from this? Is anything going to come out of this? Well, it'll be interesting to watch, right? Um, you know, there are a lot of different policies that have been floated around in Pennsylvania for a while that have been stopped by the Republican state legislature, which will now be divided, that'll probably come up again. I mean, key amongst those is outgoing Governor Tom Wolf tried for many years to put in place a natural gas severance tax. Oh, right. Right, on the industry. And, you know, at one point in time, actually, Pennsylvania State Senate voted to approve that, but it ran into an absolute brick wall in the House. Um, now, that was a time when the Pennsylvania state budget was, you know, sort of facing dire straits. Um, so I'm not sure that they'll be able to repeat that, but I would expect um, that issue to come back up and incoming Governor uh, Josh Shapiro to put that forward. Another thing, you know, incoming Governor Shapiro was the is the Attorney General, and I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago, he released a report following a two-year investigation by a grand jury, basically focusing on you know, the repeated failures of the Department of Environmental Protection in Pennsylvania regarding the fracking industry. I did not remember that. Yeah, it was a big report at the time. And so one of the things that the grand jury recommended in that report was putting in place a 2,500-foot setback. This is 
you know, the space between buildings and oil and gas development. And this so, was a big fight in Colorado too. Was that the center of the fight in Colorado? Yes, it was. That's, it was a ballot initiative in Colorado that went through multiple times, never quite made it across the finish line. But as we talked about, when Colorado post the 2018 election ended up with a trifecta democratic government, they overhauled the commission and the commission put in place a setback, you know, a bigger setback. So I think we're going to have a little bit of that debate in Pennsylvania too, but because you have divided government, you know, I don't think it's likely that it gets done, but you know, we'll have to see because, you know, there will be things that folks in the Republican Senate want to get done and uh, maybe some room for compromise. Maybe some wheeling and dealing. Is this, um, is the excise tax, is this just a straightforward sort of thing where the state wants more money and the industry hates it and they're just going to fight to the death over it? Is there any reason the industry would have, you know, a reason to sort of accept this or or view it as, I don't know, is it is it as straightforward as it looks? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, never is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the the two, like sort of both sides of the argument. On the one, are, on the one hand, most states that have oil and gas development have a severance tax in place, right? Mm. And so that Pennsylvania doesn't is sort of an anomaly. But what the oil and gas industry will tell you is that they've got what they call impact fees in place in Pennsylvania, which are, you know, they would argue is like the substitute for a severance tax. So that is the core of the the issue there. It's always going to be contentious. Taxation's tough. <laughs> yes, yes. And so Shapiro knows, presumably knows the, you know, the skeletons in the fracking industry's closet as well as anyone <laughs> having done this report. So what is the kind of political valence of fracking in Pennsylvania? It's big there, right? It's big there. Yeah. It's still a big part of the state budget. So I presumably know Governor is going to sort of lead a frontal assault, but sort of what's the kind of, what's the status of fracking in Pennsylvania right now? Oh, I think that's right. I mean, it's a big part of the industrial base in Pennsylvania and, you know, has a big foothold, particularly in rural communities. Mm. And so, like you said, I mean, I, I see it more, you know, if I'm looking way out to the future, maybe beyond the current cycle, I think it'll end up more like Colorado and New Mexico where you potentially ultimately have greater regulations in place, that it's not a ban, right? It's a bigger oversight, bigger regulation, pointing the industry in a direction of greater environmental responsibility in the activities that they do. Right. The other thing, uh, I almost forgot this, but before you leave Pennsylvania, the other thing is there's some question about Pennsylvania staying in Reggie, you know, for listeners, that's the regional greenhouse gas initiative, the the quasi cap and trade system they've got going in the East Coast states. Uh, what's kind of the state of play there? Yes, that's right. There is a sort of a back and forth between the state legislature and outgoing Governor Wolf about Pennsylvania's participation in Reggie. I think the state legislature tried to basically get Pennsylvania out of Reggie. And I believe, if I remember correctly, they failed by one vote. Um, <laughs> and then they took it to court where it remains, um, <laughs> is my understanding. Yeah, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, I think, is taking it up. Uh, yes. If it's not there, then I think there's a good chance that it ends up there. And that's, you know, a different place than, than not as impacted by the midterm elections, right? <laughs> right. Right. And and is Shapiro, I mean, court is court, 
they're going to argue it out. Pennsylvania Supreme Court's going to come to some conclusion. Is there much Shapiro can do to affect that process one way or the other? I believe that there was a just one of the justices recently passed away. Pennsylvania. I don't know if they're appointed, if they're elected, um, and whether or not Shapiro would have influence over over the composition of the court in the wake of that. Elected Supreme Court? That seems... Yeah, a lot of states have... You know, what happens in a lot of states actually is they get appointed first by the governor and then they're up for election and then a lot of times they're not contested even. Oh, huh. Interesting. <laughs> it, seems like, it seems like just a weird thing for your random citizen <laughs> to be voting on. <laughs> I, I imagine turnout in those races is, is orders of magnitude less than you know, U.S. Senate races and governor right. races, right? And every state, I believe, does it differently. Oh, geez. So that's Pennsylvania. Uh, Shapiro's in there, uh, not going to crash the democratic system. So that's good. It's pretty low bar, but it's good. Uh, and probably going to squeak out a few maybe narrow wins through a divided legislature. What about Illinois? I always feel like... Um, you know, among clean energy types, you know, it's like Bush said, you forgot about Poland. I always feel like people forget about, uh, <laughs> I always feel people feel like people forget about Illinois as kind of a dark horse. Uh, but a lot of stuff's going on in Illinois and Pritzker uh, won re-election. So what's the state of play in Illinois? What should your sort of average clean energy type know about that's going on there? Yeah, I would lump Illinois into the category of states with trifectas that have a lot of law put in place and then now it's sort of a implementation time, right? right. So Pritzker's got his second term and first term he signed a bill into law that would decarbonize the energy sector. I think it was called the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act. And it became, I think their claim to fame is the first Midwest state to commit to net zero carbon emissions uh, by 2050. Yeah, and tons of stuff in that law. I, I, I'm remembering now. I wrote up, <laughs> I covered that law. A lot of good environmental justice and, and like um, uh, union, you know, work standards stuff in that bill. More than I think you'd probably imagine when you're thinking about a Midwest state doing this. Yeah, you know, and I think Illinois is going to be another one of these states that, that the other thing that we're going to see, in addition to implementation of some of the the laws they have on the books, is some disbursement of funds that get passed down to states through the the Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Mm. So I, I think I read this morning, you know, I think there was like $5 billion to build out EV charging, right, that was given right. to the Department of Transportation and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. And so there was a the whole process where DOT had to solicit state plans and, you know, states put those in and then they get approved. And then after that happens, then you get disbursement of funds. So, for example, I think now we're in that disbursement of fund stage, right? And I saw somewhere that, you know, Illinois is going to get $148 million or something mm. like that to do EV charging in the state. Exciting. Yeah. And just must be fun to have a trifecta in place when you get a big bucket of money. You just don't have to, you know, you can just Correct. set about spending it instead of arguing <laughs> forever. Uh, <laughs> and Pritzker also has, has uh, mentioned that he supports a carbon market, right? Some sort of market... Uh, mechanism in Illinois. Who knows if that will make it to law, but he seems inclined to that direction. Uh, there's a couple of sort of stray states, no offense to the states we <laughs> left out. Of course, they are all uh, wonderful. Um, Connecticut, 
Nobody ever thinks about Connecticut, uh, but <laughs> Ned Lamont. Nobody ever thinks about Ned Lamont. <laughs> sorry, that was mean. Ned Lamont's a great. Sorry, Ned. <laughs> sorry, Ned. Uh, he's governor. Little little known fact: Ned Lamont, who you know is sort of famous for, I feel like losing to uh, what's his name, is now governor of Connecticut. Uh, so Ned Lamont has been good on clean energy. He's been pushing on clean energy. He, uh, I think, he had a executive order setting a 2040 uh zero carbon goal and he'll probably you know now that he has a second term now that all that's been sort of uh, reaffirmed by the voters he'll probably push harder so you know things are happening uh in connecticut ned's got it in hand uh we'll we'll leave it at that let's hit a few others real quick uh nevada kind of a Slight bummer. Uh, they no longer have their damn trifecta. They now have a Republican governor. So should we worry that Nevada's progress? And by the way, am I saying it right? Is it Nevada? They always Nevada. correct me. Is that okay? Nevada <laughs> sounds wrong to me. Now has a Republican governor. Is he going to screw up uh, <laughs> all the progress uh, that the Democrats made in Nevada in previous terms? I think Nevada Democrats are going to control both chambers of the state legislature, right? So you'll have divided government with Sisolak, uh, you know, where Sisolak had adopted a bunch of legislation. And I don't know that that's going to be overturned since you've got a Democratic legislature in place. Right. So Lombardo's kind of stuck with it. Yeah. You know, I think they have a Nevada climate initiative. But yeah, I mean, I think that's probably right. It's hard. When you're an executive, it's hard to overcome codified enacted legislation without controlling the chambers of legislatures. Where is Lombardo on the, I don't know quite what the right way to ask this, on the kind of lunatic scale? Is he, is he Mastriano side or like Charlie Baker side? Where is he on that? Uh... I get the impression that he's more on the moderate side, right? So maybe... Maybe this is an issue where they can work together on climate initiatives, particularly on the implementation side, right? Right. Instead of, you know, because I think it's harder if you're Larry Hogan in a solid blue state and you're a Republican governor to, you know, push forward clean energy agenda. But to the extent that you are the executive who is, you know, responsible for executing the agenda that the state legislature has already put in place and you're somewhat supportive of the industry, I don't think that is quite as difficult a position, perhaps, that it might seem because of the RD labels. Right. So he's not going to be kind of a, a lunatic who's you know throwing Molotov, whatever, this way, and then trying to screw it up. He's probably going to more or less implement uh, uh, what the legislature says, which I guess is good, a good thing. One other state where you might not think uh, the midterms made that big of a deal, but kind of did, is in California. Mm. You know, Newsom is safe as governor, but a couple of things yep. I think have have changed. One is going into the election, I think he had super majorities. And as, as, as far as I can tell, there's still some uncalled races in California, but he could lose super majorities. The super majorities are not a sure thing. Is that still the state of play? I think it's likely he's going to keep his supermajorities. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I was looking at the uncalled races uh, mid last week, and I even looked a little bit to see if there was any reporting today. I think he's going to keep supermajorities in both. Mm. 
And it matters in California because they have these ludicrous uh, ballot measures that say you have to have a supermajority to uh, raise a tax. Raise taxes. That's right. So one of the things that Newsom had proposed before the election is a windfall profits tax um, on the oil and gas industry. Yeah. And, you know, at the time, so in 2022, they had a supermajority, but it wasn't clear that you were going to keep it going into 2023. (laughs) But you're correct. It's not called yet, but I think they're going to keep it going into 2023. So you think you think that will uh, lend momentum to the windfall tax thing? Because you know, just for readers who may not know, and it's not really intuitive, California is a really big oil and gas state. It's not what people associate necessarily right. with California, but it's a big industry. It's a big deal there. So, do you see that windfall tax happening? It would be the first in the United States, would it? Yes. Uh, you know, so the way that I look at, it, I, you know, I would say it's um, it's a little bit under fifty percent odds that they get it done, just because you have to have the supermajority in both chambers, so you have to keep everybody. And keep in mind, because of the way they do elections in California, there's more Democrat on Democrat competition. Yeah. So even you, though you have a D by your name, there's a broader spectrum you know, of interest within the caucus, I think. Right. Some, some oil and gas, uh, some oil and gas dims in the legislature there for sure. <laughs> or union dims, right? Uh, right. So it'll be interesting. I mean, I think it's definitely something to watch. You know, my understanding is that Newsom is going to put some more details about what the plan would be around the time that the legislature sworn in, which happens early in California. It's like December 5th, you know, then the legislature will come back and work on it. But to your point, you know, California is still the second largest fuel consuming state in the country, right? I think they're still in the top 10 in terms of oil production. And just, you know, supermajority is a big number, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. This is it's worth emphasizing. Just because you have a supermajority doesn't mean you, you know, doesn't mean smooth sailing. It's a uh, it's still contentious. And also, I was going to say the other thing that changed in California is it's pretty clear I think to everyone at this point that Newsom has, let's say, higher ambitions uh, <laughs> beyond the governorship, which, you know, could change the way he approaches things, I think, somewhat in a couple of ways. One is like, you know, they had this uh, ballot initiative on the California ballot about taxing rich people to support EVs, which you would think would be like, great. Why wouldn't everybody love that? <laughs> everybody hates rich people and loves EVs. But Newsom campaigned against it. You know, and some people were speculating that that has to do with his presidential run, that he wants to run for president saying, I fought climate change without raising taxes. Do you have any do you have any insight on on Newsom's calculations? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I mean, I I agree. I think there's a lot of speculation that he is aiming for higher office. Um, You know, the exact calculation about, you know, why taxing individuals may not be as an attractive position for that as taxing the oil and gas industry. And I can understand why that that might be different, right? And you might come down differently on that if you're thinking about a national audience. And also uh, uh, what might, and I thought, I was wondering how this might affect Newsom's thinking too, if he wants to run, is is the other big thing that's kind of going on in California right now is this fight over net metering, yeah. fight over solar rooftops and how well they're compensated. The CPUC issued a draft ruling a while back. Uh, well, they, they issued the first one and then they prompted a 
absolute shitstorm, <laughs> and they went back to the went back to the drawing board, and now have come out with a second version of this, which still is a pretty substantial reduction in in what solar rooftops will receive, and and solar rooftops are very very popular. So I don't know. Do you know how Newsom is inclined? Whether he's involved in that uh, uh, fight at all, or where he's come out on it? I mean, in theory, right, the California Public Utility Commission should be an independent yeah, right. commission. <laughs> right. So I, I, yeah, I would hate to venture an opinion. Yeah, I, I just think it would be, it'll be interesting if rooftop solar voters get a stick in the eye right as Newsom is trying to run for wider office. I guess we'll see how that plays out. Okay, well, we're we're coming up on time here. We've hit, I think, the big states where there's big change. We even hit Connecticut. Uh, is there? <laughs> is there? Are there any other uh, states where the midterm results do you think are going to shake things up? I mean, you could point to Florida. DeSantis is presumably going to continue doing nothing uh, for clean energy. Point to Texas, where I assume. Abbott is going to continue doing nothing. Are there other state results that uh, you think are worth mentioning? Yeah, I mean, maybe Colorado. You know, Colorado, um, they're going to keep their trifecta, right? So Governor Jared Polis gets a second term. The Democrats, who got their trifecta right when Polis came into office, are going to keep their trifecta in Colorado. They're another state where I think you're going to see a lot of implementation of some of the programs that were put in place in the first term, but where also there's a push to do more. And so you might see more come out of Colorado. Yeah, it really seems like if you get a trifecta and then you pass a flurry of clean energy legislation, which Colorado's legislature did, I mean, I for a while I felt like that was all I was covering is they kept, yeah. <laughs> they, kept, they kept doing stuff. And then to have voters reaffirm your trifecta in the wake of all that just seems like a really you know, like they've got all the momentum in the world now to be out ahead on this. Right. And even if you have a really productive, you know, first term, which you arguably can say definitely happened in Colorado, also in New Mexico, there's still some things that get left on the cutting room floor that folks would like to see happen. Like New Mexico, you know, we didn't talk about it, but there've been some push to also do a low carbon fuel standard there. Mm, Spreading, spreading, spreading. Okay. I think we hit everyone I wanted to hit. I guess maybe we can mention Arizona. Um, will not have the Republican trifecta. <laughs> Instead, we'll have Hobbs uh, uh, as governor, as a Democratic governor, facing a Republican legislature and a highly Republican PC, the Arizona, what the hell is it called there? The ACC, the Arizona... The Corporation Commission? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Arizona Corporation Commission. That is what I'm yeah. talking about. That's uh, four to one Republicans. So I, I, I don't know. Is is anything going to happen? Is Arizona? Is Hobbs going to? I mean, not a miracle worker, I guess. Uh, do you anticipate her being able to do anything, or I, I guess maybe stop uh, <laughs> things that the legislature tries to do? They actually had put in place a. You know, they were early adopters of an RPS. If I if I remember correctly, right? But it's but it's getting kind of moldy though. It's pretty right. pretty low and getting a little outdated. That is also my impression. So in that configuration, you wouldn't expect much change on that front, even though they were in an early adopter state. And sunny as hell. I just <laughs> come on Arizona, get it together. It should be a one hundred percent solar state. 
Okay. I think we've covered the the waterfront, covered the country, covered uh, all the big states we want to hit. Before we go, is there anything else you want to add just about the uh, sort of the uh, elections in general? Um, You know, it seems at a big picture level, extremely good for those of us concerned (laughs) about climate and clean energy. Is there anything uh, you want to add before we go? No, other than to say you have an outcome like that in addition to, you know, a productive couple of years at the federal government implementing legislation that uh, supported climate initiatives, both, you know, in the bipartisan bill and in the Inflation Reduction Act, right? So it's just a multiplier. Yeah, multiplier. This IRA IRA money is going to be giving, uh, I think, momentum and, you know, assistance to these new Democratic trifectas. So it will be an interesting two years. Nay, an interesting 10 years. We are cursed to live in interesting times. <laughs> uh, Whitney, thanks so much for coming on and walking across the uh, country with us. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.